0: Welcome to the Voice of Eden podcast. Today we speak with Daniel Prieto Alhambra, Professor of Pharmaco and Device Epidemiology at the University of Oxford. Danny, welcome! If uh, people google you, they will quickly find out that you are an epidemiologist using routinely collected healthcare data to generate reliable evidence for improved patient care. That's a lot of words, um, a lot of important topics also. So, So let's start there. Could you explain us a little bit more about the work you're doing?
1: Yes, thank you very much, Case, and, and thank you everyone for listening. Um, so basically, the work that I do and my team do, because this is, of course, a team effort, um, is focused on looking at uh, what medicines, what medical devices are being used to treat um, long-term conditions in people who would typically not make it into clinical trials. As we all know, randomized control trials are the gold standard uh, for clinical evidence, but they suffer from issues with representativeness. And external validity. And I am interested uh, to learn what happens when these same medications and devices are used in people who have um, a more complex history and, and more comorbidities or, or, uh, or are using many medicines um, at the same time and, and um, learning uh, on what happens to those people when they take these medicines or they have these operations.
0: Thanks, Danny. That's very helpful. And on that point, one of the topics that uh, you uh, and also many other biomedical researchers have focused on uh, in the past year or so is, is, of course, COVID-19. So could you tell us a little bit more about the work you've been doing with that and also make a link to uh, perhaps what we did in Eden uh, in our COVID-19 projects?
1: Absolutely. So COVID-19 is something that, of course, got us all by surprise um, I hadn't done a lot of work in infectious disease in the past, but I had done my fair bit of HIV research and other infectious diseases uh, that affected us in a more controlled way. Um, The the occurrence or the appearance of COVID-19 and the pandemic meant that we had to change everything and we had to switch focus. And at the time, uh, we... We were planning to host a um, conference in Oxford uh, with all the colleagues from EDEN and the Odyssey community uh, in late March 2020. And then we realized that, of course, we had to cancel that face-to-face gathering of more than 300 people that had registered and switched to some sort of online activity. Uh, with that in mind we thought uh, that given that uh, we would have access to loads of data uh, from all over the world uh, through colleagues in odyssey and uh, eden it was worth um, the effort trying to organize something that could help us um, understand COVID 19 better and understand how it would affect our lives going forward um, so we basically sat with the scientific committee for the conference and organized a four-day um, online studyathon where we had more than 350 people participating from more than 30 countries. Um, many colleagues from Europe and beyond joined the effort. We had uh, many uh, meetings. We wrote protocols. We ran analysis. And we created um, a lot of new evidence on two key topics, I think. One, learning uh, what COVID-19 looked like. Um, At that time, some people were claiming that COVID-19 was just the flu. And we had um, access to some data from Asia that made us realize very quickly that wasn't at all the case. Um, And then also we learned on, on the safety of a medicine that at that time was being Used quite heavily to treat COVID-19. Uh, that medicine was called hydroxychloroquine. We were the first ones to demonstrate that that in combination with acythromycin, which was also being used quite heavily to treat COVID-19, was leading to cardiovascular safety outcomes, even leading to some regulatory advice, um, contraindicating or advising against the use of that combination.
0: Thanks, Danny. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here. So Um, Yeah, clearly COVID-19 was a new disease, but uh, you also mentioned the term uh, study-a-thon, and our topic of today is... Open science. In what way do you think that this this collaboration, um, maybe you want to add a little bit more detail to it, really was different from, let's say, how we did this kind of research before uh, the era of COVID-19?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so I I think... um, The the key enabler here for open science is the use of uh, a common data model that basically breaks um, the tasks uh, that one needs to do to go from kind of raw patient-level data to the generation of evidence into two major tasks. One is the kind of data harmonization, and second, the data processing. And the use of a common data model enables the reuse of ETL and analytical pipelines uh, for many studies and many different places and settings. I think by doing that, what we uh, what we incorporate into our practice is a way to do things that means that we maximize transparency and reproducibility almost by design, because one has to share all the analytical code, all the analytical pipelines, With your partners if you really want to do research um, in a federated manner Uh, it would be different if one could have access to a central repository where all the data sits and you could analyze it from your own computer here what we're talking about is um, having a network of collaborators who are willing to share code to share knowledge and to run analytics in a federated way, in a distributed way. And that is a fundamental game changer that does not only accelerate research dramatically and I think improves the trustworthiness of that research but also generates uh, an ambience, uh, um, a way of working that is and has to be uh, transparent, open and uh, reproducible.
0: Right, so um, what you're saying is that sort of contrasted with the traditional approach of we have a research question, someone has data, and um, we just figure out on a sort of per dataset basis how to use that data to answer the question. You break it into two steps, which is first you go from the source to this common data model, and then you apply the analysis uh, on the common data model. It sounds a bit counterintuitive though, that that would speed up things, as you say. So. Isn't the amount of work always, I mean, in principle, the same? And um, does introducing a CDM not even create more work? So, so how how does the um, the timelines change through this?
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because that was uh, my immediate first reaction when I had <laughs> of this concept for the first time. Um, I guess what is different here is that the processing of data is something that we tend to underestimate. We tend to believe that one can analyze data very rapidly, that one can generate code and and make and create um, analytical programs that will run and that will have no problems. But the the reality is that when when you rewrite code all the time, like bespoke code for each different project that you do, you have to do a lot of. Um, troubleshooting you have to do a lot of double coding you have to do a lot of um, code review and that is very very time consuming and that is not only for the analytics themselves but also for the preparation of the data like generation of cohorts or case control analytical data sets that can be then processed the use of a cdm enables the continuous reuse and improvement of analytical pipelines meaning that if you are going to be calculating an incidence rate, you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time you have access to a new data set you can basically plug in your previously prepared and um, tested and validated package that you have created to calculate incidence rates and rerun that in that data. We have demonstrated this at length in the studyathons, but also more recently, in the first Eden Evidenceathon or Ethon, as we call it for short, uh, where we had six new data partners running a previously published um, analytical uh, package in their data, and we did that over a couple of days. Uh, so I think I think we have quite empirical evidence that this way of doing things does accelerate research dramatically.
0: That makes sense. So the initial step converting to the CDM uh, is still there and. It still needs a lot of uh time and effort potentially but the the rapidity so the the speed mainly comes from that second step which is is much faster to do right my question would be what is the time it takes to to convert to a cdm uh, how does that compare to sort of the classical approach
1: yeah so that is that is uh, like the probably the you know chronologically the first step but of course we are discussing it second because my expertise lays more in the analytical. Stages, right? Uh, but for for the preparation of data or curation of data, that is, I think, um, the step in the process of real world evidence generation that tends to lead to mistakes and reproducibility issues most commonly. I think we tend to focus a lot on, you know, statistical analysis plans, focus a lot on how are you going to analyze the data? How are you going to minimize confounding? How are you going to compare drug A to drug B or vaccine A to vaccine B? But many times, um, the big problems with reproducibility and the big problems with um, quality in real world evidence uh, are around the preparation or the curation of the data. And that means that if you want to produce good quality data, you have to spend a lot of time in that first uh, data preparation step. And in my experience, and I have worked with data from all over Europe using a kind of study per study protocol and and tools that we had in the past uh, that did not use a CDM, that step of preparing the data did not only take long, but it was also again, a process you had to repeat every time for every separate study. So although it might be that if you only want to do one study and that's it, it's probably faster to do it in the traditional way. If you um, are gonna be using a database repeatedly for different questions, and you are saving quite a lot of time by mapping and doing the ETL process just once for the whole data set and then you know, refining it as, as needed in the future, but mostly reusing that same instance of the database um, for all your analysis.
0: Right. That's a clear answer to the question. So, you know, it doesn't magically sort of make the time from, from the original data to analysis faster, but you're just going about things a different way. Now, one of the topics that we, we had in EDEN, um, uh, and maybe to go a little bit more into the EDEN projects, We are building a European network of data sources that can be used in the way that uh, Dani just described, uh, that are available for rapid research. But our original plan was to take our time, so to speak, and um, we had a timeline set up where we were well on the way to have our first data sources be online in this year, 2021. However, when the pandemic hit last year, we had to immediately go into um, delivery mode because we wanted to do the research on, on that disease at the time right away. And we set up a EDEN Rapid Collaboration Task Force. Um, and this was to help the data partners in the EDEN network that we have to convert their data, um, actually un- under some time pressure, right? So, so unlike... Maybe the ideal scenario that that you were sketching, Danny. We had to um, sort of rapidly set up uh, their data and convert it to this OMOP common data model that we're using in Eden. So, were you involved with the task force, and, and what were your um, maybe experiences with with uh, the mappings also that we did?
1: Yeah, so I was <clears throat> I was involved. Um... Partially, because, of course, my um, I am no expert in, in the ETLing process or in the mapping of data. Uh, and I was involved mostly at the stage of um, setting up uh, the scene for the mapping or, you know, uh, the initial steps of the mapping process. I think it was, of course, a big investment for us because we had to basically walk through the process and we had weekly meetings with the new data partners. Um, But I think it was also very enriching to understand the kind of the nature of the game in Europe and how different countries have different interpretations of GDPR and how different countries have different types of data and different information governance um, uh, details. Um, So it was was quite useful and quite enriching. And I think we learned a lot from that
0: process although it was quite involved. Right, thanks. Maybe coming back uh, to the topic of COVID-19 for a minute. Uh, So we now have set up this whole infrastructure where we can do studies rapidly. We have uh, quite a few data partners on board. What is your current focus in terms of of COVID-19 research or or maybe even beyond that? Uh,
1: So in the COVID-19 arena, uh, we are now focusing on two main areas. One is um, looking at the use and the safety of the medicines that are being used to treat COVID-19 fortunately um, we are now in a situation where we know how to treat the disease and where we know uh, a little bit about two or three treatments that can make a difference very differently from what happened in 2020 and and one can um, continue to to investigate and should continue to investigate how those treatments perform in different types of patients and in patients who maybe were not well represented in some trials so that is that is important what we are doing um, with with colleagues from around europe uh, in addition to that and'm probably uh, in terms of quantity of work. Most of the work we are doing is on the monitoring of COVID-19 vaccines um, across Europe and their safety in particular. We have done work um, that has been published very nicely in in the BMJ. We have published a couple of papers uh, looking at the uh, safety of uh, vaccines and the effectiveness of vaccines in different regions in Europe um, and I think that will continue to be very important work going forward as new, potentially new uh, safety signals emerge from the spontaneous reports uh, that, that the regulators are getting.
0: Right. So the safety of vaccines is, is a key topic and real-world data, of course, lends itself quite well to, to uh, monitoring that because you, you can see um, the full context of, of what's happening to the patients. What about other topics besides the uh, safety um, of the treatments and the safety of the vaccines? Uh, are you also studying, for instance, the effect of uh, long COVID? Yes. So so um, I guess long
1: COVID is like the, um, the forgotten uh, part of the picture until now, at least. It's, you know, the typically... It's suffered by younger people whose quality of life is heavily affected um, and maybe who didn't have a severe uh, form of the disease or a severe presentation of COVID-19 in the first instance. Um, And and of course, we didn't have the capability of prioritizing that at the beginning of the pandemic. Now we are, I think, at a stage where we need to start learning how to uh, characterize, how to identify, how to phenotype uh, the features that define long covid i don't think we are still there and we are doing quite a lot of work on that um on that topic um from my group, we have recently got some funding um, to look at uh, the characterization of long COVID uh, using electronic medical records. And then also, interestingly, I think, to look at whether COVID vaccines can prevent the occurrence of long COVID, uh, which I think would be a great motivator for for young people to, to get vaccinated.
0: But can you accurately see um, whether someone is suffering from you know, what we now call long COVID, which, as I understand, is, is not like super well defined in real world data? Uh, or would it be better to have a study where you include only people that have COVID-19 and where, let's say, the doctor confirms that they suspect this is long COVID?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a very valid point. I think, I think we are going to need both types of research. There are ongoing um, prospective cohorts where people are being uh, surveyed or or seen face-to-face to to ask about specific specific things and maybe even doing imaging and and other types of of tests uh, to understand the disease at the more granular level. Um, we, We do have quite Good quality data on PCR tests, lateral flow um, tests, and, and devices uh, to identify people who have indeed suffered COVID-19. And our plan is to basically uh, identify long COVID by the combination of a test that confirms the diagnosis of a of a COVID-19. Co- plus um, the occurrence of persisting um, symptoms or features of of long COVID over time and for more than 30 days or 90 days, depending on on the presentation. So that's that's the plan. This is work that we're just starting to do. Um, There has been some work uh, here in the UK looking at whether doctors are using code for long COVID. and, And the truth is that, unfortunately, that is still not happening, probably because there is no clear... Definition or no clear diagnostic for for long COVID as as we speak now, right? So that that is something I think we are going to learn a lot about in in the coming few weeks and months.
0: Thanks. I'm I'm very interested in uh, in what you find there. Uh, I know a few people that uh, that suffer from this or, or think that um, they have long COVID, and I'm sure many of our listeners uh, are also quite interested in this research. So we'll keep following you there, uh, Danny. Um, I wanted to end with one final question and uh, go a little bit more into, uh, let's say the future for EDEN. So obviously COVID-19 has been a major research team, but EDEN as a network, as a project is um, disease agnostic. And we have also many other types of studies that are going on like recently in in prostate cancer, uh, number of cardiovascular studies going into hypertension, for instance, uh, also in the Odyssey network. Um, my question is, where do you think that um, with the whole approach that we're now be- building in Eden and also globally in Odyssey, uh, where can we have the most impact? Because you know this this is potentially useful for uh, researchers and scientists, obviously but also for doctors in their practice and you know, UC patients. So, so you may have some thoughts about this. And then there's also the, the regulatory perspective, like um, a vaccine safety that you mentioned is an important one there. So, so where do you think we can really uh, make a difference or is it all of those? No, so I think
1: Eden um, always had a kind of non-clinically focused or clinically agnostic, if you like, agenda. So we we are creating this network to enable collaboration in Europe, but we don't have a particular clinical focus. I think as we have managed to achieve um, quite a lot of our milestones in a very early stage of the project, we are now moving more and more into enriching the network with more granular data sets, data sets that maybe have um, genotype data, data sets that have more detail on certain conditions, like for instance, cancer registry data. Um, And I think um, what we aim to achieve and what we should achieve in in the coming year or two is um, the generation of a network that enables um, researchers in Europe to collaborate and create evidence on any condition, really, not only COVID uh, or not only the conditions we've already investigated, but any condition um, and hopefully a a sustainable network that by doing research on different areas can continue to refresh those data sets and to update them as we learn more about new conditions. I think good examples would be the the collaboration with external projects you mentioned um, prostate cancer and pioneer there's also been some work on cardiovascular disease there's been work on rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory arthritis we are now collaborating with new initiatives that are being set up in Europe to investigate other types of arthritis other types of cancers and I think that is the short-term kind of future of, of EDEN and, and and where EDEN should continue and be self-sustainable from the clinical and research perspective. I think from the regulatory perspective, it's kind of obvious that EDEN um, has delivered a lot and very rapidly. As I mentioned, the safety of hydroxychloroquine I think is mentioned in some of the most recent uh, regulatory guidelines from NSEP. And, um, and I th- think that the work we are doing um, on on the safety of vaccines is going to continue for quite some time because there's many things we need to learn on, on COVID vaccines. Like, you know, if now some countries start giving Boosters, like third doses, uh, we will probably real-world data will be the best source of information on the safety of those. If countries start combining um, different vaccines or using what we call heterologous um, heterologous uh, regimens, then again we will be learning a lot from real-world data. So there is a lot of work coming up on different clinical areas that where then will will have a big impact, I believe.
0: Thanks, Danny, for um, being the voice of Eden on this episode of our podcast with us. And for our listeners, uh, we hope you enjoyed. Please, if you do have ideas for other topics or you want to give us some feedback, do reach out. We are here for you, the audience. And stay tuned for our next episode on patient involvement in open science with our colleagues from the European Patients Forum. Thank you.